de una rosa te diera una espada Pues las flores inertes nunca dicen nada Si en lugar de una bala te diera mi almohada Que te sirva de escudo en noches conceladas ¿Será que el amor es la tumba de un viejo corazón? Un hemisferio entre los dos va conspirando una razón en la vergüenza del saber. ¿Lo ves? Tengo canciones al revés y no lo crees te lo dibujo y no lo ves lo ves hay un segundo para amar se nos acaba de escapar se nos acaba de olvidar amar Lo ves, 
ya se despertó Me oyó cantar y se enojó Me vio callar y se alegró ¿Lo ves? ¿Lo crees? Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. The song you just listened to is by evolutionary biologist Pedro Marquez Zacarias from the Purepecha region of Mexico. He got his bachelor's at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México in Mexico City, his PhD from Georgia Tech, and is now a postdoc at the Santa Fe Institute. Pedro is interested in the origins and evolution of biological complexity and the history and philosophy of biology. He also plans to study the evolution of language, focusing on his mother tongue, Purepecha, which, as we will discuss in this episode, is somehow not connected to any of its surrounding Mesoamerican languages. Outside of research, Pedro is interested in science communication and had started a bilingual blog, Biomusings, that collects perspectives from different scientists. He is also interested in the inclusion of marginalized people in science. During his PhD, he taught at Freedom University, an underground college in Atlanta for undocumented students, and volunteered for Books Not Bombs and the Global Village Project, which support the education of refugees. And of course, he makes music too. You can find links to all of these in the episode description. In this first part, Pedro tells me about his early life in Purepecha, the ancient region, language, and culture that predates Mexico and was isolated from its surroundings. He describes how he moved to the city and lost some of that culture, and why he returned to it later with a renewed appreciation. He shares his early education, subsequent involvement in disenchantment with politics, and trajectory into researching biology. So, well, first of all, thanks a lot for doing, uh, you know, be agreeing to be on this podcast. It was like pretty quick, like I contacted you and like pretty quickly you got back to me. I was like, yeah, I like what this guy is doing. It's like very exciting. Um, because uh, thanks for inviting oh yeah absolutely so um 
Yeah, it's because my interests are also kind of in the intersection of the world of physics and biology. And over time, I have moved. Um, uh, I don't think you need to like mute yourself in general. Uh, well, the, the, the recording is not going to be affected by that, I think. So that's fine. So, yeah, over time, I feel like I have moved slowly away from physics and more towards like biology and, and neuroscience. But it's very exciting for me to like think and talk about, particularly like take a step back and particularly think about some of the like the philosophical aspects that you and, you know, your community seem to be interested in, which is think about, you know, the boundary between physics and life or matter and life. And I want to get to that. But before we get to that, uh, let's start with, you know, getting to know you a little bit. So, um, <laughs> sort of like a brief life story, like, you know, uh, where were you born? Mm -hmm. What was your upbringing like? Uh, what were the circumstances of growing up? And then what kind of stuff have you experienced and been involved in? in your sort of, you know, personal and academic trajectory to where you are today? Yeah. Uh, well, I was born in um, in a region in Mexico, in an indigenous region called the Meseta Purepecha. Mm -hmm. Purepecha is this indigenous culture that has existed for a while, mm -hmm. longer than Mexico as a country. So. Uh, just like in many other countries, you know, there's uh, these very strong indigenous roots in Mexico. Something that happened is that um, many of them, they still exist and they preserve their um, their culture and customs in, in some way or another. Mm -hmm. Even after the Spanish brought like the religion and everything, they still keep a lot of the cultural aspects. So... My, my my all my family's from there and my parents for random reasons they had to move through the country so that's how uh we kind of left this small town and started moving around mexico i saw and on your website how... that the language mm -hmm. is the language also mm -hmm. called purepecha yeah you said that the language has no like evolutionary connection with the languages mm -hmm. around oh no 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 with no other known languages is what you said, mm -hmm. which is very mm -hmm. interesting because so that means people have not been able to connect it to any other language known in the world today. Yeah. So it's like grammar yeah. structure and everything is kind of different. No, I mean, there's uh, according to language classifications, uh, I mean, I'm not a linguist, but there are um, ways to classify languages according how they're structured. Mm. But that doesn't give you an evolutionary relationship, right? It's like um, uh, th there's these types of languages called agglutinative, agglutinative languages. Mm. And Purepecha is one of them, which means that you just agglutinate many small roots of things mm. uh, together to form a big word. Mm -hmm. And that means something. Um but yeah, but within Mexico and like anywhere else, they haven't found uh, a relationship with any other language. So in in part is because of the history of this um, of this region. Um, 
um, before the Spanish uh, came to Mexico, they were very isolated geographically and culturally because the dominant culture were the um, the Mexica and the Aztecs in in the central part of Mexico, who dominated other cultures around it, around the valley, the central valley of Mexico. But they couldn't dominate the Purépecha. Mm -hmm. So then there was always kind of a barrier between Purépecha and everything else. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but uh, the the geography was also very important. There, there's a lot of mountains around and um, no other culture to the north was dominant and to the south also. So they remained isolated for a long time. Mm -hmm. And actually, historically, we don't know where they came from, like where how did they appear mm. we more or less know about the mayans and the aztecs and other big cultures because there's a lot of history and they they put things on their i don't know on their pyramids and some of their kind of scriptures have this information but in the case of the purepecha we don't know and also there was a very important tradition in the purepecha culture which is that every every year there was a particular day where they will burn everything they've produced during the year so that they could start anew. And that meant that there were not really old rec recordings or like anything old That's that so they produced. That's interesting. It That's like trippy. Like you could make a whole like TV show about, you could yeah, maybe yeah. put in a little bit of a magic realism or like paranormal aspect. Mm -hmm. But where did these people come from? <laughs> Are they aliens? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we can make an alien show about this. Yeah. And not only that, uh, there's there are some very interesting cultural aspects that they share with the Inca culture yeah. in South America. Uh, for instance, within all the cultures in Mexico, nobody knew how to use copper, yeah. but the Purépecha knew, and also the Inca knew. And um, some of some of the kind of the clothing style was also very similar to the Inca people. And there was also a very traditional song, very old song that nobody knows where it came from in Purépecha. And in, 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 in the song talks about the four stars. Mm. And there's a constellation like the La Cruz del Sur is the, the Southern Crux, I think is the translation, that you can only see from the Southern Hemisphere. And and another just similarities that uh, like you could be very um, what's it called? Um, you if you let your ima imagination run wild, you could think that yeah. that some precursor of the Inca culture might have traveled north mm -hmm. and arrived in, in also in that area in Michoacan. There's a river, mm -hmm. so then if you arrive in 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 that zone. Once you start in the river, then you go up through the river and then you start to see the copper mines and like the development of the culture in the very early stages geographically. So that kind of makes sense. But um, and only kind of recently, some people have started doing studies, not on the Purépecha, but in other cultures. Um, and they've they've proven that uh, there was possible and there was actually a lot of kind of traffic from the south uh, of the continent to to the north and to to the to the to the west of the of the of the pacific coastline 
uh, up to what's called this very group uh, uh, group of islands in in the Pacific, um, Polynesia, and all of that. I think so. It has been proven that people were able to travel very long distances in the past, uh, but. Uh, the Purepecha is kind of a small region and nobody has really studied um, how could these people from the south, uh, how could they travel up there? But, I mean, it's still open question, like, nobody really knows where these people came from. Could um, you tell me, uh, could you tell me a couple of sentences in Purepecha? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what uh, there's a phrase that's um, very used in in that region, uh, and they also have their own flag. Mm -hmm. and, and then in the flag, there's a symbol of strength. And when you say or strength of this people of this town, of, not town, this area, you say Huchar Winapiqua, mm -hmm. and Huchar also is like us. So when you, for instance, tell somebody you're my my dear. Uh, uh, if you have a lover, if you tell them, my dear, you also use that huchar, but you say huchet, mm -hmm. minzita, is heart, so it's you are my heart kind of thing. I see. And so it is, it is like a living language that people actually speak in. Like you grew up, yeah, yeah, your yeah, first absolutely. language was Purepecha? Well, I'll say my zeroth language was Purepecha. Your zeroth language. In, in, wow. Because uh, when we were just starting to speak, it, it, my siblings and I, it was just Purepecha and it was just kind of in, in our minds in very early yeah. in, in our lives. But then we moved to the city and then it became uh, something kind of blurry. Mm -hmm. And now none of us really speak it, it speaks this language. So uh, I understand a lot of it. And also because I'm interested in music and they they have preserved the language also in music, so they play a lot of music in Purepecha and uh, obviously my parents and everyone else in my family, but ex except for my siblings and I speak it. So in, in that sense, in, he, for instance, my brother, who's the eldest, he he spoke Purepecha very well when he was very young. Mm. And, but then we moved to back then to the, world, the largest city in the world, which was Mexico City. Um, and then he started school and obviously there, there was a huge pressure to, to just speak Spanish. And also, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of discrimination in Mexico against indigenous people, yeah. even to this day. So back then it was even stronger. And I think my family felt, or my parents felt the need for us to use primarily Spanish. And actually sometimes they would speak in Purepecha in front of us just to like to talk about uh, i don't know adult things i don't know yes. <laughs> they, they will what they would talk about um so it was kind of later in our life or in our lives especially me who from my siblings who got interested in kind of relearning about the culture and specifically about the language and then it was about middle school that i started going every summer to my grandparents house and visiting a lot of uh, family members and just being there was 
by the end of the summer, I felt that I could speak yeah. and understand almost everything. Yeah. Because it's a very intuitive language. Um, as I was explaining how you make these phrases of my dear or, or strength, there's there are many roots that you can use and combine mm -hmm. to to make up some phrase. Even if you don't know everything about the language, you can start building. And I think back then I was much better about uh, about that or developing that intuition that I'm now but um yeah but that's that's been kind of the story of my relationship with that language mm -hmm. and you were saying that your uh your family like you're kind of telling me about your life trajectory so you like moved away from there and moved to the big city and then yeah to Mexico City and to other cities um because my dad worked in the military, uh, he was moving around a lot. So actually with my mom, they went from from one extreme of the country, which is the around Cancun area, mm -hmm. not in Cancun, but around that state, to the other extreme, which is um, Baja California, which is below California, mm -hmm. to Chihuahua, which is below Texas, to obviously Mexico City, which was one of the first places they moved to, and other cities in in between. So they happened to travel a lot and, well, not travel a lot, just move around. Yeah. <laughs> they actually were not, uh, we were not, uh, uh, we, we didn't really take much vacation. Mm -hmm. in, in, it was not like traveling because of the sake of traveling. It was just because my dad was moved from one post to the next. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how yeah. did you eventually like come to um, studying what you are and working what, on what you are working on? Well, it was, uh, well, that's a very, I guess, longer story, but the short version is that because, I mean, my parents didn't really have education. Mm -hmm. So actually my dad went into the military because it was the only kind of stable job that he could find at the time. And my mom only studied up to, I think, middle school. Mm -hmm. uh, also because in this indigenous region, women are not seen as, a, like, they don't value education for women. And my mom was actually kind of an outlier going beyond elementary school. Mm. So she really fought her way to go through middle school. And I think because of that lack of structure or my siblings and I, weren't really uh, kind of caged in a specific area. So for instance, my sister studied architecture, my brother studied history, and I studied uh, what's called biomedical sciences. Yeah. Um, so well, and you have a PhD, right? I I'm finishing. You're finishing like, a PhD? Right now yeah. I'm, I'm writing my thesis. Wow, that's like uh, such a huge leap from like between one generation and another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dramatic. yeah it's yeah. yeah it's very dramatic and um i mean and i mean i don't know how this fits into the whole thing but something that i've been kind of more aware recently is that when i was younger and uh, i thought like going out and studying was like the holy grail of progress in in my hometown so i would tell all my cousins and relatives of my age you should go and study like that, that's gonna 
get you far, right? Mm -hmm. And now I think I'm not so sure about that anymore in the sense that um, what they have there is something that you cannot replace by anything else, which is the culture and the people that yeah. that you grow with yeah, yeah. and the community and the very strong sense of community yeah. that you build being there. And just going out and studying and then getting interested in these very abstract things mm -hmm. that sometimes have no relation with reality mm -hmm. anymore and getting your uh, bachelor's, your PhD, all of that is kind of the opposite of building a sense of community. It's kind of isolating yourself yeah. so that you can study this particular thing in yeah. this very obscure field. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. now... So now when I'm when I go and visit my family and uh, some of my younger cousins or family members like, oh, what are you doing there? Uh, like, how is it living, I don't know, in Mexico City or in the US or whatever? Like, I, I tell them about my experience, but now I, I don't really mm. try to force them to yeah, like, go yeah, and study yeah. and like I think that's a that's a, I mean that's a real nugget of wisdom because um I feel like there's this very strong maybe somewhat silent global culture that I mean I don't know how to describe it really but it's it's like part of it is reflected in this thing that you know, you're kind of like ashamed of the indigenous culture and then everything that's kind of like, probably like I could just call it like kind of like Western or whatever, uh, Western science, Western, whatever, everything, everything like that is seen as like this glamorous. And as you keep mm. climbing up in that world, everyone, even the indigenous people or like people in India, they see that as, oh, you're, this is cool. Like, you know, yeah. but um, yeah. For example, as you were telling, and, and, and so this big global mental culture makes you very easily forget that you can have like a different value system where this is not the thing that's most valued. Um, mm -hmm. Because everything around you, whether um, explicitly or not explicitly, is constantly reinforcing this idea is, mm -hmm. um, do you have like a lot of education as far as the Western parameters are concerned and you know whatever things like that and so it's like this big contrast between like as you were telling me about the culture of Purapecha I was like this is actually so cool that there are mm -hmm. so many unique and sort of like mysterious and very like unique things um, but on the other hand when you like come to the city it's those kind of it's like you're like it, it makes you feel like kind of like a shame for mm. uh, so it's like if you think about it i mean there are certain things that are like kind of flipped about this value system that we are trying to assimilate within us um mm -hmm. i think yeah. it doesn't really value some of the things that you know some like more indigenous cultures they would be more like quick to see that mm -hmm. oh yeah it's like this community thing is kind of important <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh yeah yeah, for me, I think it took me, it took getting a little bit older before I started getting a little bit disenchanted with the, the big, uh, the promotion machine of mm -hmm. like yeah. kind of Western media and Western everything. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the things that are 
I would say I value from my own uh, native culture. It's not very easy to put that in words or like prove it or like demonstrate it very easily. Um, or it's not something that you like show off to people or, you know. So anyway, so so you're sorry, you're going to give me like a brief uh, uh, description of your trajectory into like studying what you're studying. Yeah, so then around and I mean, I was uh, because I didn't have education. Oh, there's something funny about also education, which is that uh, my birthday is in October mm -hmm. and the the school year starts in August in mm -hmm. Mexico. So um, and back then uh, uh, kindergarten was not mandatory. I think it's still not mandatory in Mexico, but back then it was not. So I didn't go to kindergarten. My siblings did, but I didn't. But anyways, when I was uh, about to be aged to, to, to start elementary school, my mom took me to the school and tried to enroll uh, me in school in first grade. And they said, oh, no, he's not yet the age because I was just like this two months mm -hmm. or whatever it, oh. it needed to be actually the age. And they've changed the law now so that that people in my situation would be able to enroll now but back then i couldn't so that was quite disappointing because at that point i was very excited about school like i would see my siblings doing homework and maybe that was a torture for them but to me it was like oh cool like you get to to do these random things and so i was very excited but then because of that i couldn't enroll so and then my mom said like oh that's that's too disappointing but no no worries uh, i'll let's go and get you uh like a notebook and pencil or whatever and then just kind of very randomly she started over that year because then we need to wait another year right for the next school cycle um she started teaching me kind of the letters of the alphabet or something like that. So something very basic, just to just to keep me, I guess, uh, not as disappointed as I was. Um, and then just I randomly started picking up books mm -hmm. and and pretending to read <laughs> or trying to read until one random day, like things started to make sense. Wow. Like I I could actually read words and they will make sense in my mind. Uh, but my my parents didn't even notice. Like, and I was just picking books and started to read everything that I could possibly read. That's so strange. And it's like some kind of phase transition happened in your head. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> which, some which switch was, clicked on. <laughs> which was crazy to me. Yeah, and the also the other crazy thing is that we didn't really have like a books for kids or like anything like that. It, like our family is not really. Yeah like we're the kind of the first western family in quotes from that time so they didn't really brought us up like reading tales for kids or anything like actually my my dad's library was quite interesting because he was in the military mm. and he liked to read and they will give him books about i don't know alexander the great aristotle like Nap napoleon and all the war great great war heroes 
and I just started picking up these books and start reading. Many things didn't make sense, obviously, like there were so many words that I didn't even know what they meant then, maybe not even now, <laughs> but uh, but the things that the words and the structure of the language start to make sense. So then one day we were like in a, in a bus with my mom and I started just reading the signs, you know, like the driving signs and like you go to this way for that place and and i told my mom hey look something and she's like what so and now <laughs> then she realized that i knew how to read <laughs> so, which to me was crazy that she didn't know because wow. at that point i was already reading random things um so then when i got to finally enroll in in first grade i already know how to read and i just started learning like how to write and but like the things that they would put us to read, they were very boring to me because mm -hmm. I was reading other things that seemed more interesting, like how the wars and like the strategy of the military or yeah. whatever, <laughs> which like, like it was quite vivid sometimes reading some of these things, yeah. right? And, and so I think from that point, I just got interested in anything from elementary school to middle school, any anything that would be of interest i'll read a lot about it so i i think i, I just read um as much as i could uh, as soon as i discovered i knew how to read and in high school i was also very interested in politics so i was i, I would have been labeled as a nerd but i was not like uh an iso isolated nerd i actually had many friends and i was at that point kind of popular in school so i was very into politics and i was like yeah comrades we're gonna do this and that and things like that you know so oh, it's like, I, it's I like got... some kind of communism no no, no i'm just saying comrades oh, as a, kind of a half half a joke half I not see. a joke because it's kind of a loaded word in this country um but but the word in 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 spanish like camaradas yeah. or compañeros is yeah. kind of very commonly used when you go out for a rally yeah. or for something so um so i would go and hey let's do this and let's do that so i was very interested in politics and i mean i was good at i don't know chemistry or physics or whatever else yeah. we had but uh, biology also but, but i hadn't really developed a passion for the sciences um but I was very passionate about politics, and uh, during the three years of high school, I I kind of started to 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 feel that being in politics was kind of um, was very it was kind of a dangerous path in the sense that so many things were or seemed unethical to me, mm -hmm. like to in order to get to a, an actual actually good position in politics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you needed to do so many kind of obscure deals with people and there was a lot of money involved and I mean, this is high school but it just so happens that the high school that i went to is so important in that state of mexico in michoacan which is the state i'm from and like the the person who who led the independence war in mexico he was a director of this high school and the other person who also led the independence war in 1810 uh, around these years he also was a student there so many big his historical figures in in the country studied there so 
because it kept that historic load, the politics inside the high school, even though we were just high schoolers, was so important. Mm. Like almost every governor that wants to be a governor needs to go through through this school in some way. Mm. And also there, there's been so many like important people in the world, like there's a very important poet in in, in Latin America, Pablo Neruda, mm -hmm. and he he visited also this this high school, and so because of that, I started to learn like in order to get to this position, right, to be governor or senator or whatever you wanted to be, it would have been very hard to to be to have high ethical standards, mm -hmm. right? You everyone has to do something shady to get there mm -hmm. so that was kind of my first in a sense professional disenchantment mm -hmm. because um i didn't want that f for me or to do that as a career and it just so happened that then i was also interested in chemistry so then one professor invited me to the chemistry olympiad and i was like okay i'll go to the training and i went to the training but the professors never show up they were always late and I just got bored and then I left the chemistry Olympiad and someone, uh, another professor invited me to the biology Olympiad and said, well, I know you don't really like biology, but the first, the first topics are chemistry. So maybe that could be of interest to you. So I went there and yeah, it was chemistry, it was biochemistry, the, the, the first uh, few um, chapters of these books and what really got me interested in that it was the professor he was and still to this day very engaged with material with students with everything with education in general and i was like wow like this this mm -hmm. this person has this real passion for for biology right and he kind of just inspired me to keep studying biology and in in this competition then I participated for one year, and in that year I won in the in the school, in the state. And then I won the national. Then I went to the international. I didn't won the international, but it was just like one very intense year out of the high school that I developed a very strong interest mm -hmm. and passion for biology. And in particularly, I was interested in biochemistry for for a few years, even the few couple years the first couple years of college i was also very interested in biochemistry and the interesting thing is that then in that year of of the competition my least favorite topic of of the biology olympiad was ecology and evolution yeah. and now if i describe it's myself like it as has a biologist the least, i'm an evolutionary biologist biochemistry <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah probably right yeah. so but now I'm an evolutionary biologist, yeah. right? <laughs> so, uh, it just took me a while to get to this point mm -hmm. uh, within biology. But it just I just needed to get into the biology realm and then explore different topics. And like in college, I I was more interested the the degree that I was in 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 Mexico City, which was the the national university there, it was uh, biomedical sciences. So it was mostly kind of molecular biology. Um, a lot of genetics, immunology, um, e e biology. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in bio biology also. Mm -hmm. And you have to do uh, research um, 
almost full time every year in a different lab. So this was a very intensive program. It was research based uh, program. And, and I thought that I would do that for like for the rest of my career, like do kind of biomedical things, mm -hmm. uh, which would have been quite handy for these times of the pandemic. But um, then I just in one of the labs that I was there and um, in one of the labs that I did uh, research, I also didn't really like the environment. It was uh, in a hospital and then in the hospital there was like the big balls. And then there were like the sub buses who were like medical doctors. And then below the medical doctors, there were the PhDs and postdocs. And below the PhDs and postdocs, there were the thesis undergrad students. And then below the thesis undergrad were people like me who I wasn't doing my thesis there. I was just doing a rotation and it was just very hierarchical and it was just a very strange environment for me. Mm. So I didn't really like it. And I got an internship at the University of Arizona. And I remember that I requested to do biomedical research during that internship. But they said, well, all the places for biomedicine are full and we don't have any more. So you'll do research in ecology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went to an ecology lab and it was great. Like, I really liked the environment. Like, everyone just quite horizontal mm. like you could talk to the pi or to anyone uh, and it would be the same if you were an undergrad or high schooler versus postdoc whatever yeah and just coming back from that when i was doing my research thesis in in, in mexico then i decided to go into an ecology lab so that was my last year of college i did uh, research in uh, microbial ecology and that's where I also knew about the work that my current advisor is doing. So then I contacted him and then he invited me to do an internship in his lab, which he was just starting here at Georgia Tech. So then I came here. So while I was completing my undergrad thesis, then I came to Georgia Tech and did also research here microbiology evolution and I was, and that was it and so i i finally found kind of my calling mm. within science <laughs> so it took a long while right um it's not that i've always been yeah, yeah, yeah. you know many biologists are like oh when i was a kid i saw this ant or this insect or whatever and then i i knew i was going to be a biologist mm -hmm. no it, for me it took a while and not only that, but within biology, I kind of explored, wondered many things before finally saying, okay, evolution is like the thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Now I've been, I've been here almost, well, now six years. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I have to graduate this summer. And then in the winter, I'll be going to the Santa Fe Institute in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I'll be doing just theoretical work. So also within the PhD, I started doing mainly experiments my first couple of years, but then I, I, I've been doing mostly theory for the last three years or so, yeah. or more. So now I think I've changed again <laughs> my gears from 
having done experiments for years during college and first couple of years of PhD and even during my internships to doing now just theory. Mm. And it wasn't anything planned. Like I didn't plan to be like that. I've been just wandering across different topics, but it has come in handy because now, I mean, now I can talk to people who do theory in biology and I can talk also to experimentalists yeah. because I've done the experiments yeah. and I hold up how a bacteria looks under the microscope kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I also know like kind of the frameworks that people use in theoretical biology, yeah. which is... So I'll come to the yeah. these uh, sort of research questions in a little bit, but I guess to um, to sort of do a little bit more justice in rounding out your uh, bio, uh, I guess I should mention that, you know, you're you're still like pretty interested in a lot of like extracurricular stuff. So you were a teacher at this thing called the Freedom University, which is where mm -hmm. you guys teach undocumented uh, people from Atlanta. Yeah. So you're yeah, yeah. you were involved in that. This is all the only stuff. This is only the stuff that I see from your website. You're probably yeah. maybe involved in mm -hmm. other stuff as well. But another cool thing is like you're you've also done some of this like little documentary slash interviews, talking to scientists in the field about different topics. Most of the topics mm -hmm. that I saw are about thinking about what is life and questions about mm -hmm. evolution. And I kind of enjoyed mm -hmm. those uh, interviews. So you're interested in science communication. You also have some songs on your website. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure, like, is are those you? Did you? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're like pretty good with the with the guitar and singing and everything. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, it's just a, it's just a hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Thanks for hanging out with Pedro and me in the Room of Lives. In the second part, Pedro argues that biology cannot be reduced to physics, which sees causal chains, and instead has to develop its own theories based on causal cycles. And does our scientific reasoning of causal chains versus cycles map onto our religious cosmologies of a linear universe, such as the Christian universe, versus a cyclical universe, such as the Hindu universe. En la guitarra escucho voces florecer, pero no encuentro acordes para embellecer. Tu risa está ya en este amanecer. Yo no En el oscuro inmenso de este anochecer Perdí el soneto inquieto que quiso nacer Palabras buscan puentes hacia ti Y las palabras 
se hace nada pues tu vuelo es aleteo de mariposa Si algún día tienes la necesidad 